0: Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Our passage from Mark today shows us, in effect, a day in the life of Christ when he had entered into ministry in Galilee. It's pretty exhausting, isn't it? We're so used to reading each of these little vignettes in isolation, a few verses at a time, that we may forget with what a rapid fire barrage of them, Mark opens his gospel. In my first year here at VTS, when I saw uh, Dr. Hook and Dr. Grebe and a class of VTS students perform the gospel of Mark through at a sitting, it was that aspect that most jumped out at me. Christ, the son of man, one miracle after another, before you can even catch your breath. We're only five chapters into the gospel, And Christ is, so to speak, exploding off the starting block and beginning the sprint that was his earthly ministry. If we were analyzing this text in a church history section of mine, I would be asking you, what is the argument of this text? Here, the portrayal of Christ is Mark's argument. In this, our first introduction to the personality and the teaching of Christ He isn't only the great human teacher who, in the words of the late great Leonard Cohen, taught what sounded like the truth and seemed the better way, but was yet a truth that's not the truth today. Instead, Mark argues, alongside and underpinning Christ's teaching, giving it authority beyond its immediate historical and environmental context, is a power that fizzles and crackles and seemed to arc off Christ like an electrode. In the previous chapter, Christ had crossed the lake, landed on the shore, exercised a legion of demons from the Gerasene outcast, before turning round and crossing back across the lake to encounter the crowds we met at the beginning of our reading. After our reading concludes, Christ returns to Nazareth Only to be rejected, he proceeds to send out the Twelve independently to perform miracles similar to his own. The mission substantiated by Christ's power ultimately extends beyond or rather through Christ himself to the Twelve and out from there. Surely it's significant that in Mark's Gospel, the Twelve are sent out as early as chapter 6. The power bursting out of the thundercloud, Mark seems to be saying, will find its way to ground, one way or another. And if the expected avenues are closed, it will find outlets elsewhere. As such, it's significant that the people touched in our passage are people on the fringes. They are both, obviously, women. And women without husbands and sons. You'll note that Jairus is named in our story with his social position and his rank. His daughter, however, is not named, nor the old woman who is healed, and we never hear from either of them again. Although I think there's surely a novel to be written about the later adventures of Jairus' daughter. At twelve, Jairus' daughter would have been on the edge of puberty, perhaps just achieving marriageable age, but not herself with any legal standing. Christ encounters the old woman literally on his way to somewhere else, that Mark can tell the heartbreaking and all too familiar backstory of the gradual depletion of the old woman's resources by the doctors suggests that he knew something about her, or that the details of her story would be told later. But before she forced her way through the crowd and into history, who would have cared? An all-too-familiar sight for us, even now. An old woman, worn down by constant pain, pain that consumed all she had to live on, and left her destitute, and vulnerable, and exhausted, and probably bitter and cynical too, at least as regards doctors, and desperate. And the cherry on top of all of this misery was that, according to Jewish law, she would have been ritually unclean because of her constant bleeding cut off from the religious consolation that is the bulwark of so many older women in distress. She has tried all the usual, all the expected avenues, and they haven't helped her, but rather she grew worse. She may not have been a particularly nice person. Now comes this stranger through town, with an even stranger reputation. Perhaps he can help her. What does she have to lose? So here we have this old woman who's incidental, disposable, on the way to somewhere else where the action is supposed to be, and yet who pauses everything for just that one moment. Or rather, Christ pauses everything. He could, of course, have kept on walking, without drawing attention to what had just happened, but he didn't. Perhaps because he knew and wanted, publicly acknowledged, down the centuries, this old woman's long illness and her faith, at least her need, in the midst of utter hopelessness. Jairus' household has already launched into the elaborate rituals of mourning and can't seem to stop themselves. They don't wait to see what Christ can do, and they don't believe him when he shows up in their midst and tells them that everything will be all right. I feel like there's a moral in there somewhere. Christ, leave me alone. Can't you see I'm despairing right now? Christ encounters true faith and faithfulness not in the midst of the synagogue leader's house, but here on the side of the road, from a nobody, amidst ritual uncleanness. It's interesting, too, for what it says about the very intimate connection between Christ and the people he healed. Power went out from me. It was something he seems to have felt physically in his body. Americans are the heirs of how mostly white Anglo-Saxon Protestants have over the centuries tended to construct authority and gender. A deep English public school love of the Greek and Roman classics, combined with the immortal myth of the American cowboy, have constructed authority for us as male, tall, talking soft, and carrying a big stick, emotion held back in stoic detachment. When we have dramatized the Gospels for stage or screen, elements of this portrayal often creep into how we see Christ, along with pre Raphaelite white skin, blue eyes, and strawberry blonde hair. Christ serene, Christ detached, Christ gentle, and meek, and soft-spoken, and non-threatening. He's usually tall, too. It's a depiction that has been most recently mocked, gently but I think brilliantly, in the Coen Brothers' film, film Hail Caesar. Christ dressed all in white, flooded in sepia light, shot from behind so all you see is orange hair. Hail Caesar is of course sending up the robe, Quo Vadis, and other Swords and Sandals epics. The narrative problem in those films is that precisely because they're telling extra-biblical stories, Christ is never allowed to say or do anything, any more than he's allowed to be seen directly. He just looks on and passes on. All in all, it's a depiction that I don't see anywhere in our Mark reading for today. Instead of detached stoicism, what we see is a kind of hectic intensity burning-the-candle-at-both-ends quality. Francis Spufford, in his book Apologetic, I'm paraphrasing here, says that in the Gospel accounts, it's almost as if Christ has blinkers or an interesting kind of tunnel vision. Wherever Christ looks is, at that moment, the center of his universe. Whoever he looks on, stares at, interacts with, heals. They are, in that moment, the absolute center of his world. And for that moment, perhaps they are the center of the world. Detachment and aloofness are not words in his vocabulary. And so when we see him finally arrived at Jairus's house, marching into the middle of the grief-stricken relatives, telling everyone to call off the lamentations, kicking everyone out, calling Jairus's daughter back to herself again, and then hushing everybody up about it, we see Christ the firecracker, Christ the meteor, Christ the manifest.